Okie dokie. The training world is full of technical editing courses that don't teach the high-end creativity the viewers expect. Inside the Edit was created specifically to teach you every single creative skill you'll ever need to mesmerize your audience. Hello dear friends, welcome once again to another episode of your favorite editing podcast, Once Upon a Timeline, the official podcast of Inside the Edit. As always, I am your host, Paddy Bird, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy week for another in-depth discussion on all things editing. No software chats, no optimizing interfaces, nothing to do with workflow, shortcut keys, or Premiere versus Avid, etc., etc. This podcast's sole function is to help you become a better craft editor. A continual and progressive discussion on the art and psychology of a successful career in this beautiful art form of ours. We're going to go a bit left field this week. There's a phenomenon in both psychology and quantum mechanics that I think is an incredibly interesting springboard into certain areas of creative editing. As we all know in our community, editing is a highly complex art form that requires a broad range of very intricate skills. Of course, I love discussing those intricacies and minute details of how we actually edit. But if we combine this with the occasional wide and broader perspective, this can really help us build that three-dimensional understanding of our craft. Zooming out then to the bird's eye view is essential and reminds us of the systems and principles that underpin editing itself. So let's dive straight in to this week's creative discussion. Editing, to me, is often like life itself. I see so many editing principles, procedures and mindsets in the world around us. And because of this, I've always found that the more I connected the outside world and the theories from other disciplines outside of filmmaking, the more of a three-dimensional understanding of it I had. I really don't care where they come from, and I actually find it interesting to spot them in far-flung subjects that have little or nothing to do with making films. The fun for me comes from reinterpreting and connecting the structures of any theory and seeing how relatable they are to my favourite art form editing. As a documentary editor, I used to choose a lot of the films I worked on based on the fact that I knew nothing about the subject. Working on a doc is, is kind of like doing a degree in that subject very quickly. You have to master the subject, the characters, the research, the perspectives, and often the arguments for and against a lot of the time. And as the world is full of an enormous amount of fascinating subjects I know absolutely nothing about, I considered the life of a doc editor a pretty good way to spend my life. I'd never run out of things I knew nothing about. I love the fact that when I walk into a bookshop, within 10 feet I am confronted by at least 100 different complex subjects I know zero about 
and which are written by incredibly smart people. And one of those subjects was definitely quantum mechanics. I got a D in science at high school. I was browsing through just such a shop some years ago with a friend of mine who is very sciencey. I picked up a book that had something about quantum mechanics in the title and started flicking through. I stopped on a page and saw the words, the observer effect. Hmm, that looks interesting. What the hell was that? My friend brushed past me and looked over my shoulder to see what I was reading. She spotted the observer effect and in a very animated way started explaining exactly what it was. I was riveted. An observer effect is the fact that observing a situation or phenomenon essentially changes it in some way. Observer effects are prominent in physics where observation and uncertainty are fundamental aspects of modern quantum mechanics. But after some digging, I discovered that it wasn't just confined to quantum mechanics. I also discovered that the observer effect was in many other fields as well. In psychology, it was a form of reactivity in which a researcher's cognitive bias causes them to subconsciously influence the participants of an experiment. And it was when I read that that I immediately started to see the relationship to our job as editors and as filmmakers. The connection seemed inescapable. Now, this had long plagued me when I was making the transition from editor to director a few years before. I remember being pretty terrified when I realized a few days before my first big shoot that reacting to the footage as an editor was very different from creating the footage as a director. I soon found out that it required a whole set of new skills and psychological intelligence that had largely to do with shaping and managing human behavior. Now that aside, what started to pull me into this subject and its connectivity to editing was this idea around another of the major but largely unsaid skills in our art form, the ability to construct authentic and believable performances from the characters. I'm sure you've heard the often repeated maxim in editing, the editor is the first audience. Now, I love that saying the first day I heard it decades ago, and I still love it today. But like any maxim or aphorism, I wanted to know what are the mechanics behind it? What's going on underneath? Well, if you dig deeper into it, you're confronted by a number of different responsibilities that being the first audience entails. Filmmaking is a constructed and mechanical art form. The underpinnings are very specific. We try and capture varying forms of reality in a condensed visual format with lots of stops and starts. It's heavily constructed. From the enormous amounts of lighting changes and location changes in a drama to the turning on and off of a camera to capture multiple events from different perspectives in an observational documentary. One of the first things you learn about filmmaking, specifically drama, is the concept of the suspension of disbelief. Now, this is based around the fact that because filmmaking is such a constructed art form, we have to have as one of our major goals the ability to trick the audience into thinking this is real and not all just made up and everyone's pretending. Now, that is very well known in drama, but no one really talks about the fact that it's just as applicable in documentary, reality TV, corporate films and a whole bunch of other unscripted genres as well. 
The sheer mechanical nature of the whole process of capturing images, the starting and stopping, the reframing by the camera operator, the duplication of action in different shot sizes and camera positions, the heavy priming of characters when the camera is off to get them in the right psychological space, the numerous warm-up questions any director needs to go through in order to calm the nerves of a character who's never been interviewed before. The list is pretty endless. It's so fragmented. And so one of the key skills is this ability to hide all of that construction, hide everything that shows the fragmented nature of the art form itself and make it all smooth and seamless like it was always intended in that way. The golden rule is that no matter the genre, the viewer must never have that suspension of disbelief broken. They have to believe this is a version, a believable version of reality. And all of this has one natural enemy, the observer effect. Now, shots and action and car chases and B-roll, you know, pretty much anything that's not human behavior is, is fairly easy to make look natural, but it's human behavior that is a lot more difficult. And the root of this problem goes back to the fact that as soon as a high percentage of people in front of the camera know there's a camera pointing at them, their behavior changes. There is an observer effect going on. It's not that the character thinks that the camera operator is looking at them. No, they know that there's potentially a whole audience looking at them, made up of thousands or even millions of people. Ask any experienced camera operator and they will all be able to tell you how finely tuned they are to fake or nervous or inauthentic behavior when they're looking down the viewfinder. Some people get shy, some people blush, some people get nervous, some stutter, some get brain freeze and can't remember anything that they wanted to say. On the other side, some people get very articulate, some get charismatic, some rise to the occasion in many different ways. And of course, some go overboard, some play up to the camera. I mean, I've lost count how many times I've been watching the raw footage for an observational or reality-based scene I'm cutting and you see someone shouting or screaming about something in a heated discussion and it looks great, but then they quickly dart a look over to the camera to check that it's pointed at them. Even my 10-year-old son plays up to the camera when he knows I'm pointing my smartphone at him when we make silly films together. Behavior has been changed because of acknowledgement of the camera's existence. Unless we actually have CCTV footage where no one knows they're being filmed, it will always have an observer effect. But despite this inherent restriction within the nature of subject-object or camera-subject, whichever way you want to look at it, we have to sift through the raw footage, analyze all of the human behavior, and ask ourselves that incredibly important question. What do we believe out of all of this behavior on screen? Sub-questions would include, does this look fake? Does this look inauthentic? Does it look constructed? And therefore the suspension of disbelief is broken and the viewer switches channels or clicks on another film app or goes to another website or walks out of the cinema, whatever. We, the editors, act as early warning systems to inauthentic behavior from our characters. To when the observer effect triggers a spilling over of behavior that wouldn't be believed by millions of viewers. No matter what we're cutting, this has to be at the forefront of our minds. 
Now, to a certain extent, the compressive nature of our art form and the fact that, you know, we have music and things like that, maybe some graphics or anything, also goes some way to lowering the percentages of unbelievability. Those things act like a mask to hide certain deficiencies. But most human beings are experts at sniffing out fakeness when it comes to other human beings. There was a very famous cult British gangster film that came out around the year 2000. And I remember hearing a story from one of the assistants. They said they watched the editor go through all of the different takes of the actor's performance. Take one, take two, take three, etc., etc. And they heard them mutter under their breath as they watched each one. Don't believe you. Don't believe you. Don't believe you. Believe you. Believe you in the second half. Don't believe you. Believe you. And when I heard that story, that really affected me as a young editor. You know, it really hit home one of our primary jobs. If I don't believe you, then in the bin you go. If I don't believe you, then millions of people watching this won't either. If I don't believe you, I failed in my role as the first audience. Now, this story in turn brings up an interesting further point. Each genre has its own type its own level, and its own uniqueness to the individual observer effect. As the editor on the gangster movie showed us, going through multiple takes of the same performance, a trained actor or actress is trying throughout to sink down into the most authentic performance possible. Some actors and actresses like to stay in character for the whole duration of the shoot, sometimes months, much to the annoyance of many a director. But drama is just one genre. An observational documentary or reality TV character is usually highly aware of the camera in the first few days of shooting. This tends to dissolve gradually when they get accustomed to the crew, but it doesn't disappear completely. Or if it does, it's only for very rare moments. A sports player, say a basketball player or a footballer, will come in and out of the observer effect at various points. They'd be totally focused when playing the ball. If they didn't, they probably wouldn't have a job. But as soon as the ball goes in the hoop or over the net or in the net or whatever it is, and they score, they often come out of their focus and into their observer effect and want to show off in front of the camera in some way. Which makes it pretty easy for us as editors to sustain authenticity because they're really excited and we can put those shots straight in the promo. A presenter on a TV show is highly aware and definitely changes their behavior when they are counted down to deliver a piece to camera on location or in the studio. And so this is not unlike the actor or actress in a drama. When we're cutting these, we're looking for the most believable take when they're reading it off the teleprompter and looking out for things like, do their eyes follow the words on screen? And so does that look fake? Or... What is the most authentic laugh or simulated normal behavior from them when they're doing whatever they need to do in the scene? It's yet another slightly different way we need to look at the observer effect as editors. And of course, if we're cutting a music video, it's the authenticity of the performance that we're looking for in the best takes, the most sensual, the most charismatic, the most alluring, the most energetic, whatever the tone of the song and performance Whatever conflicts with that, whichever take doesn't look real, or we glimpse a moment of fakeness or self-consciousness from the singer, onto the cutting room floor that goes, never to return. 
In the end, it's not about the truth. It's about the ones that look true to the audience, the ones that pass through our test of authenticity. As editors, we're privy to a huge range of behavior in front of the camera. And so it's incredibly important that we take that raw footage and painstakingly sieve through it all, analyze it, and cut out anything that disturbs the audience's believability. This is a first layer within the cutdown from raw footage to rough assembly and an essential part of the early stages of any edit. But there's also a final point I'd like to make about the observer effect, and that is this. We have to look out for the opposite. We have to look out for those rare moments when the observer effect is not there. The gold for us editors, are those rare moments when the observer effect disappears in the mind of the character. That amazing take from the actor or actress, that truly natural moment in a reality or observational set of rushes where the character forgets momentarily that the camera is there and is themselves and has unrestricted emotions about something. Those are the moments which will often resonate with the audience more than anything else. Those are the ones where we as the audience completely forget we're watching a two-dimensional screen, no matter what the size, could be an iPhone, could be a cinema, and we get sucked into the performance, the drama, and the narrative. We can't forget that we're designing human behavior over time. That is the essence of many scenes. And so locating those amazing moments of authenticity when the self-consciousness of the character temporarily flies away is of paramount importance. We need to hunt for those moments and stick them out in front for the audience to see, to hear, and to connect with. Sigmund Freud once said that thought is action in rehearsal. But if there's an observer effect happening, then that can become distorted when portraying human behavior to an audience. If the internal dialogue of a character is messing up their behavior in front of the camera, we must go on full alert. As a human filtering system, we should always keep in mind that believability within a constructed art form is one of the iron laws of editing. hope you enjoyed this week's creative discussion dear friends reach out to us on social and tell us what you think we'd love to hear from you learning how to edit is difficult scour the internet and you'll find it is full of software-based editing courses that do not break down and explain the step-by-step process of how to construct your documentary scenes, promo sequences, news stories, corporate films, or whatever you're editing. If you want your films to have that truly powerful emotional effect on your audience, come and try out the industry's most in-depth creative editing course. Many of the world's biggest broadcasters, media brands, production companies, and filmmakers use the Inside the Edit creative editing course to learn the secrets of this magical art form. Go on over to InsideTheEdit.com and try it out for free.
Okay, it's time for this week's What Am I Watching? Well, a few days ago, I rediscovered an old treat, a very old favorite of mine, a film which has, in my opinion, one of the most electric scripts I've ever heard and one that I definitely watched dozens of times over the early years of my career. Now, I don't know why, but I love films that were once plays. Maybe it's because one of my dad's numerous careers over the years was as a playwright, and I spent many years as a child hanging around the fringe theatres of 1980s London. Dialogue has always fascinated me. How much there is of it, how it's constructed, how it's delivered, its intonation, its inflection, its constantly changing pace dictated by the person or people who are saying it. And understanding how to construct, manipulate, and really design it always seemed to me to be a fundamental skill in editing. And the dialogue absolutely sparkles in David Mamet's Glengarry Glen Ross. This cult 1992 movie was adapted from his 1984 play, which won the Pulitzer Prize. And listen to this for a cast. Al Pacino, Jack Lemmon, Alec Baldwin, Ed Harris... Alan Arkin, Kevin Spacey, obviously before his recent disgrace, and Jonathan Price. Quite simply, wow. Al Pacino is rumoured to have said that it was the best cast he ever worked with. Set in just two locations over a couple of days, a rundown real estate office in New York and the bar opposite, it tells the story of a bunch of sleazy salesmen who are threatened with the sack if they don't up their sales in the next fortnight. As you'd expect from a cast like that, it is an utter masterclass in acting. But it's also great direction from James Foley and brilliant editing from Howard Smith. Now, as a fan of David Mamet's dialogue, famously known as Mamet Speak for its high-paced and original construction, I learned an enormous amount about dialogue delivery and the differing rhythms of speech Obviously, a well-trodden path when learning anything is to look at what the masters do and begin a process of memorization and emulation. And that's exactly what I did. Dialogue patterns are dramatic constructions that we can actually memorize the more we're exposed to really good ones. They are rhythms that start and stop. They go up and down, that change direction, that pause, that speed up, that slow down and overlap with someone else. As we well know, the ability to construct authentic character delivery in a constructed art form is one of the subtle yet essential layers of the pro-editor's skill set. Now, when you dive deep into dialogue editing, no matter what genre you're working in, you realize that one of the major ways you construct believable dialogue is ironing out the tempo in the natural delivery of a character. It doesn't matter if it's a high-end drama scene or a sequence in a low-budget corporate film we're cutting for an online brand. The ability to redesign the tempo and delivery through the compression or decompression of space between words, sentences and phrases distinguishes the good from the truly great editor. The great editor considers the raw footage of a character's dialogue only as a first draft of performance and that depending on the intention of the scene or sequence, A certain amount of retiming will be necessary to install a new rhythmic delivery to make sure it is as powerful as it can be. Now, no one is ever privy to this level of detail in how a film 
was cut, outside of only a few people in the cutting room. No behind-the-scenes making-of documentaries ever go into the detail of the thousands of minute changes in dialogue delivery on a timeline. Who the hell would be interested in that kind of depth anyway outside of us, the editing community? And this is why our only recourse is often to watch the masters and start to memorize the patterns ourselves. Watch the dialogue delivery, watch the body language, the facial expressions, the tempo of the speech, how it changes, how it rises and falls based on the emotions and inner state of that character at that specific point in time. You know, plays turned into movies are really great for this as a training exercise, as they're often limited locations and very dialogue heavy. It's a dialogue feast. As a side note, another favorite of mine for this is the early 1970s classic Sleuth, starring Laurence Olivier and a young Michael Caine. The tempo range of dialogue delivery in this movie is also a masterclass and a worthy set of patterns to analyze and memorize. I learned so much about dialogue from Glengarry Glen Ross, and it will always be one of those films that I credit in making me a better editor. Give it a watch. I'm sure it will do as much for you. Okay, it's time for Ask Paddy. On every episode of Once Upon a Timeline, I answer a question from our community. If you've got a question you like answered, just reach out to us on social or email me at podcast at insidetheedit.com. So I guess our question this week is in response to last week's episode, Promo-itis, the perilous journey from short to long-form editing. If you haven't listened to it already, go and check it out. There's some really cool creative theory in there, if that is your particular path. So Mark from Vienna in Austria has asked, as a promo editor, what do you consider as the most important skills for 30 to 60 second work and how would you train for that? This is an excellent question, Mark, and thanks for asking it. So let's dive deep into this one. Now, as we talked about on last week's show, one of the main characteristics of short-form work is creative compression, the ability to summarize to a very, very high standard. Our dear friend Wills Niederich, long-form documentary editor whose films have been Oscar-nominated, came on the show back in, I think it was season one, and talked about this very subject. Will actually started out in 30 and 60 second commercials and promos, and he talked about this insanely confined real estate on the timeline. Every single second is important. There can be absolutely no fat on the bone at all when you get down to these types of minute durations. It's visual storytelling on steroids. So we can see that our answer is a kind of reverse engineering of last week's creative discussion. By the way, if you hadn't checked out Will's two episodes back in season one, definitely go back and watch them. There's so much cool stuff in there. He is a great articulator of our craft. Now, I love creative concepts about editing, and they are banded around the industry all the time. But more than creative concepts, what I really love talking through is the specific detail about how you actually achieve them. What is the step-by-step process and mindset that you need for each and every one? 
That I don't see a lot of out there. Now, this is by no means an exhaustive or comprehensive list, but three of the major things that I think every promo editor needs as a baseline. So this idea of compression that is at the center of working in promos, what are the actual things that we need to do in order to achieve that to a very high level? Well, for starters, montage is essential. The ability to be able to compress a narrative in pictures where every single shot is a clearly defined link in a well-defined chain. Now, in cutting a montage, it's important to ascertain and clearly define a few things like the duration of action compared to real time. For example, is this 15-second montage a compression of 45 minutes of real-time footage, like the compression of action on a cookery show promo? Or is it made from disparate and less connected footage that doesn't have a clearly defined time-based arc? For example, a montage of different clothes and models in an online fashion promo. These questions matter as they clearly define the task at hand and solidify what's expected of us from a creative perspective. The more questions we ask as editors, the better editors we will be. There's no getting around that. Secondly, I would say the summarization of meaning. We touched on this last week, but essentially it comes down to this. How do we convey the essential points in this very quick narrative with the minimum amount of shots and the minimum amount of sync? Will two shots do instead of three? Will one shot do instead of two? What is the bare minimum of information we can get away with while still conveying what the audience needs to know? This can come about by really analyzing each and every shot in tremendous detail. What is going on in this shot? What is its meaning? What do the audience know when we've shown it to them? Is it part of a chain of action where the meaning becomes evident over time or a single image? This is another essential set of questions to ask ourselves in promos because we often find that some shots are doing the same job and we're duplicating meaning unnecessarily. Of course, the test for this is to just cut out one of the shots and see if the meaning works without it. If we haven't lost any of that meaning, then it stays on the cutting room floor. And finally, music. You need an advanced understanding of music and how to use it on the timeline when you're a promo editor, no doubt. Make no mistake, promos, more than many other genres, are so often shaped by music structure. You need to understand where to cut, what elements within the music to cut to, and really know how to create cutting patterns through the use of the score. Something, of course, we went very deep into on our music editing bootcamp series, which will be available very soon on our new shop at InsideTheEdit.com. If we can weave these all together in a stylized structure, then we have the beginnings of a career in promo editing. A career that is incredibly fun, incredibly rewarding, can also be very well paid, and may very well be suited to creative editing artists who prefer working on short projects and more numerous projects than a long former. Thanks for the question, Mark, and I hope this helps. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, last orders at the bar, it's closing time. Episode 14 of this third season of Once Upon the Timeline is in the can. 
massive shout out to our longtime partners over at Universal Production Music who supply every single track for the show. And don't forget, if you're sourcing music right now for your projects, go and check out their site. They have over half a million tracks in every conceivable genre, tone, tempo, and mood. Or if you like any of the tracks on this or any other episode of our podcast, just go on over to InsideTheEdit.com and check out this episode's page for links to every single one so you can license them. We're a very small company here at Inside the Edit, dear friends, just a few passionate filmmakers trying to spread the word about this beautiful art form of ours. Helping us grow our creative community is really appreciated, so please don't forget to tag us on social and share it with your filmmaking friends. However, if you have 30 seconds to spare, a rate and review on Apple Podcasts is also really, really appreciated. Thank you so much for being part of the Inside the Edit community. Have a great week, dear friends. I hope you enjoyed this week's show, and I will see you very soon on another episode of Once Upon a Timeline. Stay cool, stay safe, and of course, stay cutting.